0: You have to, to be you, be your authentic you, and it doesn't matter if people accept you or not. You have to be happy with your own skin.
1: Hi guys, my name is Marcel, and I'm here today with Maham. You will speak about her life and how she came into the blockchain space. Uh Maha, it's a pleasure to have you. Let's start right away. What's your catchphrase?
0: If not now, when? Why? Um, Okay, this is a bit of a personal story, actually. Um, On the back of COVID, um, you know, when we were all staying at home, being locked up and we're not allowed to travel, unfortunately, I lost my mom and that was a wake-up call that life is too short, that you have to seize opportunities now, live now, and stop procrastinating because tomorrow is not guaranteed.
1: Mm -hmm. I really like that one, that advice. Um, Let's start with your childhood. Where have you been raised, where have you been born?
0: I was born and raised in Doha, Qatar, but background-wise, my father uh, is Palestinian-Jordanian. Mom, may she rest in peace, was Syrian. Um, And yeah, I spent my entire childhood in Doha, so 25 years in Doha, did not really have a lot of exposure out of the Middle East aside uh, from the time that I had my exchange semester in in Scotland, but um, that's where my childhood was, tiny little country in the Middle East, not really a desert, but a peninsula, and yeah. (laughs) <laughs>
1: hmm. Now I'm super interested. How how would you describe each other? What was a typical day?
0: I don't want to brag, but I don't <laughs> want to sound like really really uh, annoying. Um, but in Qatar, we were we we were pretty well off financially. So um, I had my nanny <laughs> who was there from the day that I was born until I was like 12, 14. Um, and a lot of the time, my nanny would basically make sure that I have my school bag in order, that the breakfast is uh, is ready, then we'll go to to school with the driver. My parents were working like really hard, so um, a typical day would start by getting ready for school, doing the homework, sometimes having tutors at home for the subjects that I sucked at, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and after the studying is over, I would I would just go around and play in the garden. Um, My sisters always used to tell me that I used to create my own perfumes, and that would mean mixing mud with cleaning supplies (laughs) and God knows what. (laughs) But I I used to love to experiment and try new things. And I used to love to spend a lot of time with my pets. I always had a cat, like always, always, always had a cat. and, of course, spending time with friends. Uh, back then, uh, going to the cinema was still a big deal. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was pretty much
1: that it. Was, that was a typical day. And what was your experience with school that, oh, that, uh, at a very young age? Did you like it?
0: So, in, I skipped the grade. Um, and I was always the younger one in the patch. So, so it, it was a bit difficult because you always want to fit in. And... Um that was that was interesting. When I was in the primary school, I was a good girl, I was like very obedient, but somehow the moment that we turned from secondary school to high school, I went completely nuts. I was rebellious, I was um my my dad used to always come to me, he's like, This school did not call this week. What are you up to? (laughs) (laughs) So I used to cause a lot of trouble, detention every once in a while. Um, I'm not so proud of it looking back, but uh, it was just my way to test my borders to to see that okay, um, you don't always have to be so obedient in a sense. I recall once me and my best friend, who's, who's uh, now a shrink uh, in in the U.S., we drowned the school. We we have something that is called like in, in the morning we usually have the flag salutation. So we will stand in front of the flag and pledge allegiance blah 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 and my friend and I Bushra if you're watching that's you (laughs) Um, we went to the to the top of the roof of of the school building and we were just kicking things around until we hit a water pipe and all of a sudden the entire school like literally had the worst water damage (laughs) and we almost got expelled But that was the kind of person I was. Um, Then my parents were not so happy with the way that I was behaving and like, okay, we need to talk. So they took me from a private school. And the last two years I spent in a governmental public school, super hardcore, strict. Um, And it was actually the right decision to do. Um, That's when I became an Uber nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I just focused on studying. Um, And I remember graduating the first of my class with 95% for my Abitur. So that's like, I always get this mixed up. In Germany, it's like a one. Mm. Yeah. And uh, university, I continued being a an nerd and graduated also the first of my batch in, in uh, banking and uh, accounting. So, yeah.
1: Mm. Let's say for a moment at at your primary school, secondary school yeah. time, what was your experience with teachers? Or let's start, what was your favorite subject? And was it at the same time your favorite teacher as well?
0: Favorite subject, languages, uh, English. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also like biology. Um, favorite teacher, it was Mr. Lennon. He was some uh, a teacher that I had in the second grade. And he was just so cool coming from Australia, playing football, playing the guitar. And th- the idea of me being in Qatar, him being from a different continent, uh, was always very appealing. Um And he was the best teacher I've ever had, and I think that's why I I loved English all along. Uh, On the other hand, (laughs) the subject that I hated was math, was because of a teacher. (laughs) So I was okay in math up until I had that particular teacher who made me hate the subject and just block it in my head. Um, Fun fact, I'm married to a mathematician. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's an interesting but thing.
0: Maybe I have to have a therapy session about that.
1: <laughs> but what would you describe makes a teacher good and what makes maybe a teacher not so good? What, what helped you uh, from a pupil perspective?
0: I think that in a lot of cases, teachers forget that while you have a unified subject that you need to teach and bring across, you have, I don't know, 15, 20 different kids with different mindsets, with different interests, um, and you have to appeal to that, to that student with what he or she likes. Uh, for example, uh, I'm not talking here about myself, but my daughter. My daughter uh, is Hochbegabt, and for a certain period of time, we thought that she is basically also rebelling, and she's not having a good time in school. After having a session with uh, a specialist uh, who conducted an IQ test, and they told us like, she has an underachiever syndrome because she's bored in school. Mm-hmm. We went to the school. We started talking to the to to the uh, management there and and the the teachers, and they were not willing to put any extra effort in terms of giving her extracurricular activities, giving her other exercises specifically. I can't believe I'm saying that in math. <laughs> <laughs> so what we tend to forget is like, yes, the subject is unified, and you might have a standard test, but you need to to see the the student for what he or she is and make it appealing. And it's a burden for the teachers. I mean, sometimes it's easier said than done, but you need to focus on the visual, focus on the the kids that would want to memorize things in a different way. And those who would like to have it super analytical. So that is the recipe of success in my opinion.
1: Mm, I agree. So now we are at the end of your school time, A-levels, and then you start studying, right? So what did you study and where?
0: So um, after graduating with the Mm -hmm. the, Abitur, I went uh, to Qatar University Mm -hmm. uh, and I studied banking and financial studies um, and I had a minor in accounting. Um, At that time in Qatar, there there was a concept that is called Qatar Foundation um, where they were trying to get universities from abroad, specifically from the U.S. But the curriculums were, at my time, Primarily going through graphic designs and arts, and I suck at art, so I just decided to go for something uh, more into the business side. Um, the idea behind that was my dad had his own company and he wanted one of us, so I have four siblings and uh, five siblings, four sisters and a brother, that one of us will eventually take on the, the family business, and none of us did. Um, so I decided okay, business, you're open, you have different. Uh, Uh, topics that you can learn um, and it is the thing that was needed the time to find a good job
1: Mm -hmm. and was that decision difficult to do to of course there were maybe the expectation of your parents uh, on the one side and then what's your own life expectation how was that process
0: most middle eastern parents are very demanding Um, they would always expect you to be a doctor, or an engineer, or (laughs) if not, maybe a pharmacist. But, um, the fact that my, my parents knew that everything that you would have, regardless of how rich you can become or how successful you would be in life, the real, real thing that you would own as a person is your education. And that's something that you could take along with you everywhere. Um, knowing that both my parents had to witness war and, uh, being a refugee in different countries until they managed to, to 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 establish themselves and really start from scratch, both parents said the best investment that you would have to do is education. And this is something that will not be taken away from you, like, I don't know, property or it's always with you. And for my mom, it was, uh, she used to say, um, you can't trust men, but you can trust your certificates. <laughs> so no matter what happens, you're, you're prepared to take on life. Uh, the fact that I decided to study business uh, was okay with my parents. Um, yeah, they, they, they did not stop me. And uh, they, they were happy with that I decided to go for, for business, for example, as opposed to not to, to, to talk anything about arts or acting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and did you like the university? Did you like studying?
0: Uh, at the university time, yes. I, I was into studying. The university is different than... than universities that you have here. Back at the time, Qatar University was not co-ed, so it was girls only. So that was interesting. But of course, we had professors from uh, from the US, from uh, UK. So we had really good professors coming from abroad. Um, We were taught in English. And one thing that I used to take for granted, but when I tell my German friends about it, they're like, what? Um, was the fact was in 2003? That was when I registered in Qatar University. Before I got my ID card as a student, I received a laptop, and that was like, yeah, <laughs> 20 years ago, 23 years ago. <laughs> because the, the intention of the Qatar government at the time is to focus on digitization and to focus on um, making their students more comfortable with the use of technologies and presentation skills. So. I recall to this very day the first thing that I received on my admission day was a laptop, and it was granted to all students.
1: Interesting. Was it your first technical device, or or that um experience before that? Yeah.
0: Um No, my dad. My dad always made sure that we, we we're ahead of the curve. So back in the '90s, you remember? You're, maybe you don't remember <laughs> it. <laughs> but back in the '90s, you had we had this like. gigantic computer that will make the the room super hot just by by hearing it run. And you have to actually go to DOS and write W-I-N so you can enter the windows. Um, If I'm not mistaken, it was like 92, 93. Um, We were one of the first to get a computer at home. And culturally back then, um, in a house full of girls. So I I have four sisters and a brother. A lot of the, the society was looking at my dad and thinking like, are you sure you want to bring that thing to a house full of girls, you might be ruining them. Um, but I, I remember the first device that I had was, was yeah, an old Dell that was gigantic. But I never, I never really liked video games, that's what my sisters and my brother used to do, like they were always on Atari or, or whatever PlayStation there was, but this never really got my attention.
1: Mm-hmm. And after after your university, what have you done?
0: After university, uh, I immediately started applying for jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I applied to Qatar Central Bank, QFCRA, a lot of local banks. I also had an internship with HSBC, but I knew it would have been in the financial sector. And of course, my dad wanted us to take on the business, but I have no clue about constructing uh, and, and buildings and stuff like that. So... Um, After having a number of interviews, I decided to to accept an offer from Qatar Financial Center Regulatory Authority, which is um, some sort of... It's not really a free zone, but it's a regulator within the country. You can go for the typical traditional um, licenses locally, or you can go to QFCRA and have an offshore license where uh, requirements from the UK mainly FCA were applied and the decision for me to go on for QFCRA was again diversity. They were, my colleagues were from all over the world as well and it was a niche topic um, and I'm glad that I chose that over any other job because till this very day uh, I'm in good contact with my, my colleagues and they're all over the world and it just enriches you somehow.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree. So. And after that, because, of course, I know at, yes. at a specific point, you yes. moved to Germany. Yes. So, when is this point of time coming?
0: Um, while I was working for QFCRA, uh, a German guy came along. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, Christian, who's now my husband, was an external consultant for EY in Qatar. And he was working for a client, so an entity that I was supposed to be authorizing as an external consultant. And... Um, and honestly, when I met Chris, I did not think of anything. Like, so like okay, he's here for a project and um, it's going to be over. But it turned out that a couple of months later, we, we met in Jordan and he met my family. And uh, that was in 2010. And in 2011, I was already in Germany and we were married.
1: That gone really fast. Very. <laughs> <laughs> was it an easy decision for you to come to Germany? Or was it even a, a wish to to see maybe other, other parts of the world?
0: Um, frankly speaking, before, when I met Chris, I was already in the process of, of getting myself um, uh, ready to move to the UK. Mm-hmm. That's when I applied for several MBAs and I even managed to find a, a part-time job in the UK because at that time, um, the UK is the financial hub and language is not a barrier. Um, but when I met Chris, everything changed. Uh, so I scrapped the UK plan. decided to move with him to Germany because I felt like I've been in Qatar for 25 years, time to do something different. On the back of it, I'm really scared of my own courage. I don't know how I managed to just switch off and go, but (laughs) it was very exciting coming from this super protective society and where everything is taken care of to suddenly coming to Germany and like, oh, I have to take public transportation. I don't know how. (laughs) Or... Um, cooking my first meal or doing my laundry and that, kind of <laughs> stuff. that was that was like really um, a growth and a growth period for me to know that here nobody who cares who your dad is here you don't have someone to pick up after you and you're gonna have to do it yourself and i'm, I'm glad that i did that decision because i grew much more as a person
1: interesting really interesting and what was your first experience in Germany? Did you like it from the start, or or some hurdles?
0: Um, I remember my first night in Germany. um, I spent the day uh, at my my in-laws' house, so Chris's parents. And that was, again, 2010, 2011. And I remember Skyping, Skype was a thing, (laughs) Mm -hmm. with my parents and showing them the area. And when I was showing the place to my mom, and my mom was like, Ma, are you okay?" Like, yeah, why? everything is so green, are you on a farm? (laughs) No, it's just greener here than in Qatar. So I was like, this was a perception from my mom that still makes me laugh. Um, Yeah, I think my first impression was, I love how many people have dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Because we don't really have a lot of them in Qatar. It's like, people usually have cats and stuff like that. But the first impression was looking around, every other person is walking their dogs that are really like that.
1: interesting Uh, what was your first job in Germany
0: oh nobody knows that Um, (laughs) my first job in Germany was um, I worked for a company called Frankfurt International Consultancy on the top of my head Um, and it was a 400 euro job it was a mini job because I just did not want to sit home and do nothing and I just wanted to get out there and I applied to a gazillion jobs like without exaggeration 200 250 jobs and i got one rejection after the other because i did not speak german at the time my experience in qatar did not really matter that much and compliance was not a hot topic uh, as it is today so i accepted the first offer and it was with from fic for 400 euros
1: interesting i didn't know that of course yeah
0: (laughs) but this this was a bit of of a challenge for me mm. to 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 say yes because in qatar i had a super high tax free salary and whatever and coming to realize like if you want to make it work you have to be humble and start from scratch all over again mm.
1: and then your responsibilities were you were a consultant right
0: i was a consultant i was helping the the the, the founder of that consultancy to basically bridge uh, the business between frankfurt and the middle east mm. so um it was a lot of business development, a bit of sales, something i never done before, but I just did it for six months before I landed my next job, but you have to start somewhere.
1: So what was your next job?
0: I worked for JAR, that's um, a boutique consultancy in Germany. I was their first hire, actually. Um, It was founded by two KPMG partners, so Achem, hi, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I loved it, so I went for the interview thinking I'm going to get another rejection. But on the day of the interview, I already signed the offer. They believed in me, and I was so thankful for, for, for this opportunity because from there, things started looking up. Um, and within JAR, I was an anti-money laundering consultant, and I did that while doing my master's. Mm.
1: Then, so what kind of university?
0: I went to Goethe University Institute of Law and Finance, where I did an LLM in finance law did you like it yes yes i liked it because (laughs) it was in english (laughs) um and i loved the 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 curriculum because it's it was regulation law and finance the professors were amazing so um, i enjoyed a lot uh the content but also the people that i met throughout um and i think it was one of the best decisions and investments that i've done so far um Again, education is key. And um, as many as you collect, as much as you grow as a person and, and start having more doors of opportunities. So, yeah, that's I did this LLM finance law. Um, <laughs> but in between, Amalia came along, my daughter. So instead of finishing in one year, I finished in two. But um, yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah, of course, I'll even more responsibility. then. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and of course, I know. Or well, I know that you landed at a specific point of time at Deutsche Börse. Yes. Was it the next position or, or were there some positions between that?
0: No. So from F- FIC to JAR, it was Deutsche Börse. And mm-hmm. I started in the markets data team in 2014.
1: And of course, um, now let's speak about Deutsche Börse. What were your responsibilities there?
0: I started in the markets data team and it was around EMIR, the, uh, the regulation. And we were implementing a reporting solution for Article 8 specifically, I did not know what a derivative was in that context. I did not know what a trade repository are. And they were just throwing one term after the other, and I never felt more stupid. I really, like, it felt like, I don't know if I'll pass my probation. What what is a trade repository, and why do you have to report it? God, what is a CCP? Mm -hmm. Um, But I had had a very great mentor, Sasha Reganwala, uh, who's now... uh, heading DACH for Coinbase um, and Christiana Baumgarten and uh, Eva Maria Keller. They, they were my my rocks, so to say. They, they were always there to answer my questions, to support me to, to the next leap. Um, and starting with EMIR, moved to MIFID 2 and there I was a central point of contact for all European um, national competent authorities for the DEMIFIR the, the implementation. Um, and after that, I got my hands into fintech and blockchain. Mm,
1: that's, of course, a really big topic for today. <laughs> yes. um, but before we go into blockchain, one last question to regulation. I think a few people out there would say, I think regulation is boring or I'm not interested in it. I know you're really big in regulation. You're yeah. posting a <laughs> lot of, on LinkedIn. Um, let me ask you directly why do you think regulation is important and why excites it? you personally, so much?
0: Um, maybe because I'm a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> I like to have everything planned and sorted out. But regulation, is is it needs to be seen as an enabler, not a disabler for the business. If you follow certain rules, you would be able to achieve the best out of something. Um, and it, it's needed to, to make the market safer, to, to protect the people that we're seeing here on the street, that they will not be subject to, to fraud or manipulation um, and otherwise it will be just chaos.
1: I agree and I think that's a perfect transition to, to go to cryptocurrencies, yes. a really new market. When did you hear the first time about Bitcoin cryptocurrencies?
0: Um, I think the first time I heard about Bitcoin was 2013 and like a lot of people out there at the time, I just associated with something bad and that criminals will be using it to launder money and uh pay for (laughs) (laughs) organs and i don't know what (laughs) but um after that um i think at around 2017 i started knowing that bitcoin and blockchain are two different animals um and that was on the back of a job rotation that i did within deutsche versa within the fintech hub funny enough i started with ai then moved to blockchain But yeah, I I think that was my first point.
1: And what were your responsibilities in the fintech hub in Deutsche Börse?
0: So Deutsche Börse had this excellent program, which is called the Evolving Leadership Program, where they would select a number of employees annually and they would provide them with very intensive uh, training over 18 months. And as part of completing that program, you have to have a job rotation either within a different department or a different location. but that, that sounds funny now when I say it. I could not go to another location because I was pregnant with my second son. <laughs> so I decided to go internally. And that was when I um, went to the FinTech hub and started looking into how startups and FinTechs are exploring different um, uh, opportunities to somehow lead to an IPO. And the common theme that I saw, and maybe I have a bit of a tunnel view because regulation and compliance, is that while the product was excellent from um, a, a technical point of view, oftentimes startups ignore the regulatory requirement to get that approval. If you're dealing with financial services, that you will need a specific license, that you need to onboard a client a certain way, and that was uh, for them a dry topic, but they needed to, to address it, and that's what I helped them do.
1: Hmm. And of course, at a specific point of time, you left Deutsche Börse then. Was it still in that FinTech hub or was it in a then already in a different department? Uh, the
0: FinTech hub opened the door for me to join the new digital markets team. It's mm. a team that uh, is led by Jens Hachmeister. And he said, okay, we need someone to deal with regulations. Mm. Um, and that was 2018. We want to start using blockchain and DLT to upgrade Deutsche Versus financial infrastructure to the next big thing. And we don't have regulatory clarity, so we need someone who would work with the different units internally and try to translate, translate that into a way for us to explore that technology without getting into trouble. So I joined the team in 2018, and we literally started with grassroots exercises, so speaking to, Bapin, to, the, to the, the, the the Ministry of Finance, but also on a European level, going to Brussels, with my colleagues from Group Regulatory Strategy. Um, Suyata, hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and um, trying to navigate um, a way for us to adopt it. And again, it was an educational exercise that you have to separate the cryptocurrency from the technology. Um, and that resulted on a European level with the digital um, finance package to which the DLT pilot regime and um, Mika were part of. Uh, and on a German level, it um, helped push the e-securities law for the dematerialization of securities. Um, and that was from 2018
1: to 2021. Hmm. And of course, we are sitting today in a different kind of company. I will come to that uh, in, a, in a minute. Yes. Um, but I see Deutsche Börse as a place were educated a lot of people in the in the blockchain space yes. and um, they were in my eyes one of the big drivers if it comes to developing people and educating people in the blockchain space but at the same time i would say a lot of people are leaving at a specific point of time what would you describe what was or what was the reason for you to decide to leave
0: it was by far the most difficult decision I had to, to, to face, um, because I loved my team. I had the best boss anyone could ask for, um, and hardly do you have a boss that is a true feminist that he really pushes his his employees uh, in terms of development, um, but I felt like i 'm not growing in, anymore i 've seen it all done it all and i 'm hungry for more and That came with the realization like it, it was at the same time that I lost my mom like. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, there were no, no, no warnings, no nothing. Um, and it made me realize, what are you waiting for? What do you have to lose? I mean, you're in good terms. If, if things don't work out, you can eventually go back, but the world is bigger um, and go and explore. And that's when I decided to join Trade Republic. Um, and I was working on helping the, adop- the adoption of crypto trading within the overall app, but that did not last very long because i had an offer from bank house that sounded even more appealing and in terms of being a a working mother it was the right decision to take so i will not have to be commuting a lot between frankfurt and berlin Um, even though trade republic has a very innovative uh, product i decided that taking bank house offer is again a better opportunity for me to learn because i don't know about market making or liquidity provision i never dealt with that and it was super interesting for me to learn how um, Bankhaus Scheich worked with the with the prosecutors from the state of Hessen to whitelist certain cryptocurrencies and again put it into circulation in a safe way. And that was very appealing for me. I was like, okay, it's a no-brainer. Um, focus on your development, focus on the, the the next big thing, and also making crypto safer for mass adoption.
1: I think that's a, that's a perfect point of time to speak about your responsibilities nowadays. Yes. What's a typical work? Yeah.
0: Um, so one of the things that I'm uh, working on is uh, ensuring that the policies and procedures are digital asset specific. Um, so we know a lot of things from, from MIFID and EMIR and CSDR that are more driven towards uh, security tokens and traditional instruments. But when it comes to digital assets, there are still a lot of questions that we have to solve until Mika is enforceable and Mika will not come into force um, for the next I don't know, 18 months. Um, So how do we make sure that we're compliant? How do we make sure that what we're offering would be safe, would not hurt our reputation, um, and would keep the confidence and the trust from our regulators and our clients going on? And there are a lot of questions that we're we're dealing with it as it goes. Like, I don't know, uh, are certain trades reportable under MIFID or EMIR? Or what do I do in case of netting? We only have a, a Basel kind of paper that is super harsh, but it's also not enforceable. And here, regulatory dialogue with Boffin and the, the, the other institutions is crucial. When you're going transparently and saying, I have an issue with that, can we please find a way to work it out? And they're always very receptive. Um, that helps. Um, so in addition to, to, to having digital asset-specific uh, policies and procedures, uh, it's uh, advocacy it's education and um, enhancing our AML policies and procedures as well even though we don't hold any client money we always work with regulated custodians be it on the fiat or on the crypto side but we want to be as compliant as as we can possibly be and within the area of a regulated bank offering market making and liquidity provision I think maybe we, we are the pioneers if not the only one a lot of them are pure crypto exchanges, um, so they don't have the same regulatory requirements as we do.
1: What would you say, if you take a one or two year outlook, what would be your goals, maybe specifically uh, in regulation? Uh, sphere. What do we do? Do we need anything more or will Mika be good enough or do we need more regulation? What's your point of view?
0: Um, I think that like, we have a good start. We have a good start because we know that anything that is a a security token or or the the use of blockchain itself does not necessarily mean the need of a new technology because we need to ensure technology neutrality. So for traditional security tokens, we've got the traditional regulations for the things that fall out of scope. So the cryptocurrencies, the stable coins, and the crypto asset service providers, we will have Mika. And it's super interesting to know that it's going to be a harmonized European regulation applicable for all European countries enabling, I don't know, 780 million European citizens to having proper access to crypto. But what is lacking from Mika in my point of view is proper investor protection. Yes, we will have it implemented through um, making sure that the crypto asset uh, service providers are regulated. But it's kind of not fair to ask for a regulated institution to go through a license and not provide them with similar deposit insurance schemes like you do with traditional world. Um, we need to also uh, I'm not a huge fan of the typical sentence that you hear and read in all of regulatory papers, same activity, same risk, same rule, I think it should be same activity, same risk same outcome because the same rule cannot apply for a business that is completely new to the game versus an incumbent that has much more resources and so on and we should not discourage smaller institutions from coming into the business Um, Of course, we need to keep the bad out and there should be certain barriers to entry. Um, Do we need more regulations? I would say it's an improvement of certain regulations, including the ones that that we have. It would be awesome that on a European level, if you would also have sanctions included um, the same way that, that OFAC does it. Like we always go for OFAC lists. Um, for tainted wallet addresses. We don't have something similar on a European level. We always have to go to the American standard. So if we can automate that process to make compliance with sanctions also easier, that will be awesome. Um, and I'm curious to see the efforts that the supervisors are going to put into also gaining that insight into that new technology and the new regulatory and supervisory risks that they will be going into. We know that the commission has invested in a new um, academy or a training program They're looking into embedded supervision. But the next three to five years, in my opinion, will be detrimental for the industry and for the supervisors to bring things to the next level. Uh, And in all fairness, I think that the European regulators have taken a much cautious approach, but um, also the right kind of approach towards it without going for a complete ban or just going straight through um, for enforcement like other jurisdictions. (laughs) Yeah
1: are you optimistic or do you see that we are in a big danger of, of losing maybe um, economic advantage um, if you take a look at in china or or united states what would you say where are we in this in this ranking
0: i think now we are in a position that we are we are still a pioneer but if we don't act right we might be losing mm-hmm. we, yeah the european uh, markets will be lagging behind but we have a all of the, 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 the factors for success. But if you keep on delaying adoption, if you keep on just um, looking for the risks without the opportunities, yeah, other, other markets like China and also the Middle East will be going far ahead of the game because um, if I look into jurisdictions like uh, the United Arab Emirates, for example, they already have regulatory standards around uh, digital assets and they don't have to wait for 27 countries to get into consensus uh, um, to approve something. Plus, they, they might be much more flexible financially, like the VCs and, and the fintechs are still, are still having um, opportunities for investment, but they don't have this, the depth of the European market uh, in terms of distribution channels, in terms of innovative products, um, and in terms of uh, an EU passport. This is, this is a huge selling point. And I think this is, this is Europe's time to shine. We, we lost the game for cloud. We lost the game in terms of instant payments in certain countries or even credit cards. But now we can do this and we can do this right.
1: I agree. But um, as you, I would say, not the, the time to do something. Because yes. if you're not doing something, we'll, we'll have a disadvantage. True that. Let us come back more to your personal life. What was your biggest obstacle, and maybe at the same time your greatest success to overcome?
0: My biggest obstacle and my biggest success is being an Arab Muslim woman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Explain us, please, why. <laughs> because
0: in the Middle East there were there were certain societal norms that you have to abide to. Um there is a certain way that you have to, to behave, and maybe that 's why I was a bit rebellious at the, at the point in time, but coming here, well, I have the freedom. there is certain points in time where you have to start showing that the stereotypical image of a Middle Eastern woman is not what the media constantly show us like we're we 're always oppressed and we don 't have an opinion and, you know. <laughs> and th- this is starting to get me a bit allergic, and i 'm trying to change that that kind of typical picture and I know that there are thousands of other women but if I can be someone who can change that image and make it better for other women to to stand out or also working mothers my god do we have a lot on our plates like for if the child is sick you would have to step in and take them from daycare but you still have a deadline and we tend to overcompensate with working hours and stuff like that so I think being a woman is the biggest strength and we need to keep it possible for women to to achieve success, whether from a working environment but also from a societal point of view.
1: Hmm. I would have two questions. Tell me. I would like to have one advice for your younger self and one advice for for mothers and work-life balance. Let's start with your younger self. Hmm. Maybe at the age of 16, 17, what would be an advice that you would give your younger self today?
0: I think I would have told myself that you got this under control and it's it's okay to be different. Because <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> was like cra- really crazy in terms of like I'm a super girly girl but I just want to be like super independent. Sometimes I need I, I need the, to always go and cry to my dad if something doesn't work but you have to, to be you, be your authentic you and it doesn't matter if people accept you or not. You have to be happy with your own
1: skin. I like that one. And now an advice for, for mothers and how to handle maybe a work-life balance? Because as you described, it's really difficult.
0: Frankly speaking, I think mothers don't really have work-life balance. We just manage. Like something would have to fall behind. If it's less hours of sleep, if it's uh, ordering in pizza because you have to work late and you cannot cook a warm meal for the kids. Um, We manage and what is important is that you should not feel guilty. A lot of mothers, myself included, will we'll feel this, this huge guilt trip uh, inside because I did not go to that parent-teacher's t- meeting or I had to buy cake instead of bake it. And it's okay. Um, I respect mothers who decide to stay at home and be full-time mothers, but I would also like to be understood for wanting to have a career and a life in addition to being a mother. And of course, my kids are always my priority, but it's not my only priority. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thanks a lot for those Thank advices. Uh, now, let's take an outlook for 2023. Let's start with a crypto outlook. Uh, what do you expect uh, for blockchain, maybe from a regulatory perspective, maybe from a price perspective, maybe from a market development perspective? What do you expect this year?
0: Um, I think we're going to have um, a detox kind of effect. So you can see that a lot of players that were in crypto for the wrong purposes are already falling apart, and good so we need them out <laughs> <laughs> um and the others who are just there because it was the, the next big shiny toy are already moving to the next one ai so the ones that are staying are staying for the long run there is the ones who are going to build things and they're going to make it because they genuinely believe A, in the technology and in the opportunities and financial inclusion that certain cryptocurrencies can can uh provide uh i i read this on joshua from link um LinkedIn profile, I'm going to steal it and tweak it a bit, she said, uh, in 2023, we're moving from banking the unbanked to unbanking the banked, and I will add, to becoming your own bank, mm-hmm. because we're, we're losing trust. We're losing trust in inflation, in interest rates, um, in, in, in providing better financial access, in fees, and you know that only a certain percent of, of your savings in the, in the bank is secure. If it would go bust, God forbid, like 2008 all over again, we have another serious um, trust issue, which primarily could be resolved using technologies like blockchain. Yeah,
1: I completely agree it's a really dangerous time, maybe. But not only dangerous, it's really disruptive. And on the other side, there are a lot of opportunities for people to to catch. Um, And what's your personal outlook? Maybe for your company, maybe for your personal?
0: my personal outlook is, first of all, for Bankhouse Shash, and is to get that additional boffin license, fingers crossed, <laughs> um, and to regain trust for institutions to invest in crypto. Um, on a personal side, I would like to be able to hopefully mentor, once I have a bit more time on my, on my hands, I would like to mentor, if possible, other others who are looking to come into the field and try to help to do Pay it forward, in a way, because I think it's, it's an excellent place to start your career with. Um, I, don't, I don't think that the technology or crypto or digital assets is going anywhere. If at all, it will be revolving and evolving. Um, and I really need a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so, take some proper time off, no devices, and spend quality time with family.
1: What would be the preferred destination?
0: Um, I might go to Canada to visit my mm-hmm. sister, yeah, Toronto.
1: That's really beautiful, Um, and of course, last question: Where can the people reach out to you, and what's the best way to do that?
0: Uh, I spam a lot on LinkedIn, so LinkedIn (laughs) is is, is my source, Um, and otherwise, Telegram. It's Maha Al sali written all together.
1: Okay, perfect. So, guys, do exactly that. (laughs) It was a pleasure, Maha. Thanks. Thank you
0: so much.